0: Are you in college or know someone who is? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2025. Live steps from the Colosseum with like-minded students and explore the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Don't miss this life-changing opportunity. Limited spots are available. For more information, Go to Institute.org slash Rome. That's Institute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at tomysticinstitute.org. Shall we begin with a prayer? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew renew the face of the 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 earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, Grant that by the same Spirit they may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The vocation of the Catholic intellectual, that's our theme. The intellectual life is not only about academic pursuits. And I think that's one of the themes of the retreat that we're talking about. The intellectual as we investigated in our conversation last night, should certainly seek to develop the intellectual virtues, the virtues of art or skill, the virtue of prudence, understanding, science, but above all, wisdom. And wisdom for Aquinas in the fullest sense, isn't only about the intellect, but also should overflow into the will. It should shape what you love, what you do, who you are, who you are becoming, who you want to be. And so, in a way, it should form the whole of your life. So that implies that to really be successful at being a Catholic intellectual, or really in any vocation. We need not only intellectual but also moral virtues, moral virtues which shape our desiring and how we deal with the different kinds of desires that that we have. But above these, we also need supremely the theological virtues, faith, hope, charity. They're the highest and the most necessary for salvation because they are what allow us to escape the limits of our nature, you might say, and attain to the goods that are infinitely above us, and that good above all is God, who we are meant to know and love as friends of God, as sons and daughters of God. Okay, so if we're going to talk about the vocation of the Catholic intellectual, perhaps we should start off by asking, what is a Catholic intellectual? And... I don't have a super sophisticated account of that. But I think we can certainly begin by removing a false idea, which might actually be the kind of prevalent idea in contemporary academia or in your academic programs. Is an intellectual, is a university professor, just a kind of intellectual worker? Uh, the um, A famous court opinion once talked about uh, certain people who work in academia as being brain toilers. Is it just being a brain toiler? You know, you have people who do labor in the coal mines or labor in the industrial factory, and you have people do a different kind of labor, which is just a uh, a less physical kind of labor, but you're sitting in your laboratory, or you're sitting in the library, and you're doing the labor of the university research. And is that what makes you an intellectual? Uh, just that your labor is without a lot of moving body parts? Um, I mean, this is sometimes how we think of digital labor or you know, the American economy, which has become basically an information economy. And so, the labor of coding the right uh, software platform, in order to generate more productive outputs, you know, this is really just about producing something, and it isn't, in the proper sense, according to Aquinas, anyway, uh, truly intellectual. I mean, it's somewhat intellectual. Because it's immaterial in some sense. But the intellectual for Aquinas has to do with something that is qualitatively different from the material or even from the animal. And here it might be helpful to just distinguish for a moment like what is properly rational from what is uh, like animal cognition. And maybe some of this is familiar to you already. But to just very briefly summarize this, you know, we are, we are animals. We are rational animals. But we share a lot of our psychology with other animals. And contemporary psychology has recognized this. And we shouldn't be embarrassed about that. Because we are animals, just like chimpanzees are animals. So we're going to have a lot of things in common with chimpanzees. We're going to have some things that are higher than what chimpanzees are able to do, or dogs and cats and so forth. What are dogs and cats able to do? What is Fido the dog able to do? Fido the dog has sense experiences. He senses things about the world around him, and in a certain sense, he cognizes the things around him. He knows the trees in his backyard, and he knows the fence, and he knows... What's his territory? And he remembers that based on repeated experiences. You can train a dog uh, to even receive certain signals and respond in a reliable way to it. There's obviously some kind of communication happening there. The dog is receiving something from you and can also communicate something back to you, the bark of, a, an, of an alarm or of um, happiness or unhappiness. So that's not fully rational. It's animal, and it's cognitive, and also communicative in some sense. That's not intellectual in the proper sense, according to Aquinas. The dog not only has the ability to sense, but also the ability to remember. The, we believe, has an imagination, so is going to have images in the dog psyche, if we can call it that, uh, of the things that the dog experiences. The dog also, Fido, clearly has an emotional life. Dogs are very emotional creatures, I think. And they're very empathetic creatures. So the dogs are good at sensing what you're feeling and mirroring that or responding to that in some way. And that's, I think, one of the things that make dogs such attractive pets, because you do feel a real sense of companionship with the dog on the emotional level. Uh, by the way, you know, that's that's not a bad thing. That's a very good thing. And maybe the fact that a lot of people are seeking animal companions tells us something about what's missing in their lives. Um, you know, this kind of emotional connection with someone else or emotional support from others. It's not bad to have an animal be there for Uh, you know, for your emotional consolation and support. Um, But it's not the same thing as having a human person be there for your emotional consolation and support. Um, One of the things that I think is a problem with um, when people talk about animals as persons um, is not that they're exalting the animal above its level, but in fact, they have a completely impoverished sense of human personhood so that they think the human personhood is really just the animal. And since dogs are able to emotionally comfort you, and they think that love, for example, or friendship is just emotional comfort, then they say, well, the dog can be my friend just as much as you can. The dog might be a better friend to me than you are. And the dog is able to love me and seems to do it better than you do. So why don't we call this dog a person? Well, there's something true, about what, but it's missing an understanding of, of the higher zone that should be available to the human, because we are rational. Okay, so that's what we're actually trying to get at here. The intellectual is not just on the animal level, it's something above that, and what is it? For Aquinas, it's the grasp of what is intelligible as intelligible, which is an immaterial grasp A grasp of the universal, not just of the particular and the individual. So on Aquinas' account, the dog knows the tree as an individual tree. He knows this tree and that tree and the third tree, but the dog doesn't understand abstractly what a tree is. The dog doesn't get to the essence of tree, and the dog isn't able to reason about what makes this a good tree, as opposed to that one. Nor is the dog able to communicate in an abstract way. To, I mean, not only to have universal ideas, but also to talk about them abstractly. The dog's form of communication remains very material and individual, tied to very particular individual things. Whereas human beings are able to understand tree, and then with language are able to signify things abstractly. And that's what's going on with like writing, for example. You can, and l- language, for that matter. It's not just the the expression uh, or the, the level of communication of a of a shout or a scream or a bark which is the manifestation of a kind of emotion, but it's the signification of the idea in my mind. And what's amazing is that human beings are able to communicate what is immaterially, abstractly, universally held in my mind. I can communicate that to you. And that can be in your mind, too, through the vibration of sound waves, through the air. I mean, that's kind of amazing that a physical effect like that can produce this immaterial intersta- understanding in the soul, which can actually be extremely powerful and, and go far beyond the concrete circumstances of today. It's not just going to, like, if you get a deeply true idea that you come to understand this, on this retreat, uh, that, that may shape the whole rest of your life. And it doesn't seem to work that way with dogs, you know, a particular experience that a dog has. So, when we're talking about the intellectual life, we're talking about that ability to grasp the real essences of things, to understand. And understanding is more than just cognition. And it's not, therefore, the intellectual life, just a life of brain toiling, where what you're trying to do is manipulate things in the world more effectively, or or for more economic growth, or higher outputs, or or whatever. The goal of the intellectual life is not that, although that can be a very important um, result of it. But the goal of the intellectual life, purely speaking, is to understand, is to know the truth. And that's what the mind is made for. We don't have intellects just so that we'll be more clever animals. Higher, evolu- higher on the evolutionary chain. Although that, that also comes with intelligence. But from a theological perspective, or from Aquinas's, I think he would say even a philosophical perspective, the reason we have intellects is to know. And this is a higher kind of activity. So the vocation of the intellectual should be in the, in the order of this, like the order of knowing. And that brings with it, you might now start to be thinking about Aristotle and Aristotle's ethics, the contemplative life as a kind of goal of the intellectual life. Because we are rational creatures, our lives should in some way be essentially contemplative, which doesn't have to have mystical overtones. All it needs, uh, all it's trying to designate, is that you you understand the truth. And you're able to gaze on it and even to to appreciate it, you might say. Well, this is to just talk about an intellectual. What about a Catholic intellectual? So for the most part, I think I would find agreement if we went around the room. I I sense it anyway. Um, That when we say a Catholic intellectual, we don't just mean someone who's engaged in the intellectual life who is also Catholic. Now, there are people like that, and um, there's, you know, that's that's good as far as it goes. But you can imagine being excellent in a particular intellectual work, a particular field of inquiry, a domain. According to the intellectual virtues we were talking about last night, you would have the virtue of science with respect to a particular zone. So, you might be a really excellent professor of tax law, for example, or trusts and estates. When I was in law school, I took a class in tax law, which I thought, you know, I was really just fulfilling a requirement, and I thought it was going to be um, very boring. And in fact, I loved it. I thought it was extremely interesting. Uh, the beauty of tax law is that it's like a coherent system, and when you understand the system, you know it's like understanding the intelligibility of a certain zone of mathematics. I mean, tax law is not quite as pure as mathematics, but it's something like that. And maybe you've had the experience of, I don't know, balancing your checkbook, and when you finally get it to balance to the penny, there's like a satisfaction that comes with that it's a finite problem you've been able to solve it and uh, that's that's satisfying there are lots of academic disciplines some of some of them are, are in a certain way maybe you know maybe this will get me in trouble for saying but some of them I think are are in themselves more noble than others because of the nobility of their subject matter I think philosophy has a claim to be more noble than things that are essentially concerned with matter. So even though engineering is extremely important, it isn't as detached or universal as philosophy is supposed to be. Now, that doesn't mean that every philosophy department is doing what philosophy's true vocation is. But my point is, um, you can imagine being a great professor of tax law or a great professor of engineering, who's also Catholic, and who then is asking, okay, how does my being Catholic have anything to do with what I'm doing day to day in my research or in my teaching? And that's, in a certain way, the starting point for this question, the vocation of the Catholic intellectual. So what we want to try to get some traction on is what makes an intellectual a Catholic intellectual, and not just an intellectual who is Catholic. Part of the challenge for any professional is to mature. And you can understand how that development happens in the course of your discipline. You know, you you begin as an undergraduate. You're learning the basic principles of the field. Then as a doctoral student, maybe in your first few years, you're like getting a broad exposure to to the whole field. Then as you're working on your doctoral research, you're really specializing in a particular domain, and you're becoming really expert, one of the world experts, presumably, at least on the the narrow subject that you're treating in your dissertation. But then as you begin to teach, you're going to have to now not only talk about that very narrow specialization. Presumably, you're going to have to teach other courses in your field. You're going to need to start widening out that uh, professional expertise. And the people who are greatest in a discipline are the ones who are mature in a broader sense, not just in a very narrow sense. But more than that, as I think we identified last night, the goal is to mature as a whole person, not just in this zone of uh, knowledge. And I think that's the challenge for every professional, to mature as a whole person. And you might think first of, the ways that that impacts your teaching, or your mentoring of students, or your relationships with colleagues, or the subjects you choose for research, or how you present at a conference, or how being a professor impacts your family life and your social life. In fact, in the end, part of the goal is to mature as a whole person. And I think this is where we begin to see uh, a connection with talking about the Catholic intellectual. Because to speak about a Catholic intellectual, I think, is to speak about the whole person and not just the person's intellectual life. And the whole person should be informed by what is highest, that is, the truths about God, ordered to God. To truly be a Catholic is to have your deepest identity be the adopted sonship or daughterhood that you receive by grace. So baptism configures you to Christ and makes it such that you are a person who now relates to God in a new way. And if you read like the you know sources from the early church, this was very clear. Christians are not like other people. Their lives have been changed. By grace, by faith, by charity, by hope. The fact that Christianity has been so immensely successful in the West means that there are a lot of people who have lost that sense that Christianity should actually really change you, change you on the deepest level, should change, in a sense, everything about you. So there's lots of people who are, you know, sort of the um, going through life seemingly not thinking about that dimension of their lives and we might want to say yes they're really on the path to heaven they're in a state of sanctifying grace uh, their life is working out in some sense but they may not yet be at that high a level of maturity in the supernatural order people who are whose lives are really shaped by the gospel, by being a disciple of Christ, they are making more progress. And at the end of time, at the end of your life, in fact, everything else about your life is going to pass away. This is a helpful thing to reflect on. Like, why do you have this time in your life? However much time remains to you in this life, why do you have that? God could have made you an angel. Well, he could not have, actually, because it wouldn't be you anymore. But you can imagine an angel. Angels are different creatures than we are. They are more purely intellectual. And they don't need to mature through time. They are simply perfect in the first moment, their first act, makes them uh, perfect or not. God has chosen to create also some creatures who don't immediately possess their perfection, but who move towards their perfection over time. And that's what human beings are. So in a way, the purpose of the rest of the time that remains to your life is that you would be perfected in what will eternally last. And the only thing that's going to eternally last is charity, really. Well, your knowledge of God will be perfected in knowledge, so faith becomes perfect in knowledge. Hope becomes perfect in the possession of what you hope for. But those are the things that in the end really will last. So part of the challenge is to be a professional who matures across the whole of life, and above all, who matures as a Christian in a way that also makes excellent the intellectual life, which is like a kind of specification of that Christian vocation. So rather than thinking of the intellectual vocation, like the vocation to be a college professor, and then trying to add on being Catholic, Uh, In a certain way, what I'm proposing is that it works the other way. The most fundamental vocation is to be a Catholic. That is to be a baptized Christian. And then that has its particular shape for you because in your particular circumstances, this living out of the intellectual life is where you are going to be that Christian. So if that's the case, then it, it changes, perhaps, the way you think about the brain toil uh, that you're doing. You want to not just be a brain toiler. You want to be a, an understander. Or even more than that, you want to be wise. And you want to be wise in this particular discipline as like a crystallization or a concrete application of your vocation to be a disciple of Christ, which is the most fundamental vocation. If then what you're doing as an intellectual in your professional life ever begins to diverge, and by diverge I mean uh, conflict with your vocation to be a disciple of Christ, well, that presents a very significant problem, and you shouldn't let that happen. I mean, on the on pain of on pain of eternal loss. That's what the stakes are, really, in the end. But more positively, how can being a good Catholic support your intellectual life? Um, I think one of the things that grace works in our lives is a work of integration. And that's really one of the deep points that I want to be making in this talk. The professional philosopher or political theorist who's excellent intellectually in a narrow range, but not excellent as a whole, who doesn't live an excellent life, which is the way Aristotle talked about the virtuous life, has failed at what is most important, even though he or she has achieved excellence in an, in a narrow range. And I think that was part of the point of what we were looking at yesterday. So. Purely intellectual perfection is not enough to make your life successful as a whole, although it is a very important part of the success of your life, especially insofar as you've devoted your life to the pursuit of understanding and wisdom. But you want to come to a kind of complete perfection. And grace is, I think, the best way that God brings about that integration in our life because sin in itself darkens the mind, enslaves the will, and results in the fragmentation of the person. Whereas holiness uh, works a kind of unification and integration of the person towards a kind of synthesis. OK, so now maybe you're thinking, OK, is all that you're saying, Father, the um, that. Like, this is just a, another talk about, um, about holiness or growth in holiness. A certain way to answer that is, yes, that's right. I mean, the vocation of the Catholic intellectual should be a vocation of holiness. But we can talk about it. We can make it much more specific uh, and how that, what that looks like, I think, for a Catholic intellectual. And that's, that's what I'm trying to work towards. So um, let me give you, uh, I mean, I think we can say the goal of the intellectual life is wisdom, and since you're devoting yourself to an intellectual form of life as a Christian, your goal is wisdom, wisdom in maybe a restricted sense, which Aquinas would call science in your field, but wisdom in a broader sense, which touches the whole of life. And and that wisdom will be importantly influenced, I think, by your intellectual pursuits. Here's uh, the characteristics of wisdom, or of the wise person, as listed by uh, Reginald Garagu-Lagrange, which um, this is an interesting list when I came across it. It's maybe good to have as like a little checklist for yourself. Are you hitting these things? Are you moving towards these things? Um, How can you move towards them? So Garagu is talking about this with a masculine pronoun. I hope you'll excuse that, uh, just because It would be, I I think, a little cumbersome to try and rephrase it. He says, one would commonly say about the wise person that he knows more than others all that which is accessible to our knowledge and is worth the effort of being known. So you, you know more. You know more of what is worth knowing. So it doesn't mean knowing more materially, like knowing how many grains of sand are on that particular beach. Um, That's knowing something, but it's not especially important. But further, Garagu adds that he likewise knows even the most difficult things. And he knows them with a greater degree of certitude than does the common man and that he doesn't change his judgment after speaking to his most recent interlocutor. So the wise man is not like constantly perplexed or influenced by the opinions he hears. But further, Garigou continues, that he can assign causes or reasons to facts and things, and therefore can teach. And that's interesting to think about, that teaching involves communicating that kind of thing, causes and reasons. And further, that he loves knowledge of the truth for its own sake and not for the material usefulness or honors that might ensue from such knowledge, which means that he is magnanimous and disinterested, and that he often dies a poor man, Garagu writes. So sorry to disappoint you. (laughs) And finally, that he is able to order things in a fitting manner, to order them, whether in the theoretical order or in the practical order, so that wisdom understands the subordination of the sciences but is not itself subordinated to any of them. So if you really have wisdom, you can order everything else. But your wisdom is not being ordered by something higher. That's the point, is that wisdom is is the highest. And this is Aquinas' line, sapientis est ordinare. It is of the wise man, or of the wise, To order. It belongs to the wise to order, to order all things. Okay, how then does it work with us if you're trying to be an intellectual? So what I'm going to try to do is, uh, in a few minutes, try to put together some of the things we've been talking about. What virtues do we need to be good in the intellectual life? Okay, well, we've already talked about the intellectual virtues. You certainly need those. You need the moral virtues. Above all, you need the theological virtues. So what I'm about to say is not especially novel. You need to grow in virtue. Virtue is the path to happiness. And virtue also prepares you for the highest things. That's one of the things that Aquinas thinks. He thinks that especially even the the moral virtues, which can be acquired by repeated action, when they are supernaturalized as you receive sanctifying grace I mean as you receive sanctifying grace they are in fact supernaturalized you receive infused moral virtues as well as infused theological virtues that this begins to bring it all together and make you it begins to perfect you so what I'm proposing is is not super complicated it's actually rather simple which doesn't mean that it's easy Uh, but just that it's not complicated. Um, This is actually a, a very interesting point, that God is perfectly simple and absolutely one. In the end, what we're made for is to know and love God perfectly. The life of heaven is just that. And the life of heaven begins now, as we know and love God insofar as we're able in this life. So that's very simple. Like, that's the Christian vocation. Know and love God. It's very easy to say, but then it gets complicated. Why is it complicated? Not because God is complex, nor because faith and charity are complex. It's because we are complicated. So we are the ones who make it difficult. And above all, it's sin that makes us complicated. And that's the problem with why we find it difficult to love. So having a successful spiritual life or growing as a Catholic intellectual is, in fact, not complicated. It does not mean mastering a bunch of arcane gnosis or spiritual practices. You will not find the secret in a bunch of spiritual practices. Spiritual practices can be good, but only insofar as they are aimed at helping you to grow in faith, hope, and love in the end. And that is the measure of your life. So how does faith, hope, and love especially work for the intellectual? I think there are um, some difficulties that some of us face uh, precisely as intellectuals. As an intellectual, you have cultivated the mind to understand. And sometimes you can begin to apply that same sort of critical spirit to your spiritual life uh, well, I mean, maybe part of the problem is some people don't do that, um, and they just remain sort of on the third grade level in their spiritual life, whereas with their uh, professional life, they've advanced to the you know, postdoctoral fellowship, right? That's, that's possible, and maybe you see it a lot. You see it in, the, in some intellectuals who are also Catholics. You know, their Catholic faith remains very immature, and very immaturely understood, uh, even though their knowledge of tax law is highly refined. Um, Aquinas does describe this. And he says, um, when this kind of thing happens, and especially when it impacts the moral life, where your moral life has not developed, but your intellectual life has developed, he calls it a kind of um, monstrosity. Uh, And he he describes it like a, a body that has limbs that never grow. So a part of the body grows to be fully mature, but a part of the body remains the size of an infant. And that's a distortion of the, of the organism. So the organism is meant to grow as a whole. That's kind of a challenging thing to, to say, because you are spending an awful lot of time trying to grow your expertise in your intellectual discipline. Are you devoting as much energy and attention to growing morally and spiritually? And if not, maybe it's worth asking whether you're putting your priorities in the right place. So you don't want to be like stunted a third grader in your moral life or in your spiritual life. And I think that also explains some of the things we were talking about last night, Uh, because that does not produce an integrated life. So an integrated life means you need to mature on all these levels. So obviously, there's a real human perfection that you're pursuing in in your studies. Don't pursue that perfection at the expense of the other in fact, more important, perfections of your life. OK, so what, uh, what are the particular, I think, difficulties that we encounter as intellectuals? There are uh, special virtues that we need as intellectuals just to perfect our intellectual life. Uh, for example, the virtue of studiositas, Aquinas talks about. We could talk about that virtue, that really pertains to like being attentive to what's actually important and not getting distracted by things that are not important. Aquinas thinks it's a sub-virtue of temperance. Temperance deals with the pleasures of touch. Uh, studiositas deals with the desire for intellectual knowledge. So Curiositas is the vice and by that he doesn't mean curiosity in the contemporary sense he means like um, pointless uh, doom scrolling of the internet or going down the rabbit hole in Wikipedia you know this is Curiositas it's seeking knowledge but not really for. An end, or, or the end that you should be pursuing. So uh, you probably know that developing studiositas can uh, be difficult, and at sometimes even like burningly painful, when you're supposed to be working on your dissertation, and everything else seems more interesting to you right now. You know, figuring out—I uh, don't know—some obscure truth about, um, you know, the Beatles' White Album seems to be the most pressing thing you could do today, instead of uh, working on you know, chapter seven, uh, which you've been working on for months and doesn't seem to be leaving anywhere. Um, so studiositas do- is a kind of temperance that requires a discipline of the mind and the mind's energy. Um, other vices against the intellectual life, per se, according to Aquinas. Uh, Sloth or Achadia. Achadia isn't just laziness, it's a particular kind of sadness. It's a sadness that you've been called something great. And this affects the graduate student in a very particular way because uh, when you're working on your dissertation and you begin to become frustrated that it's not turning out as well as you'd hoped, you can become sad that you ever began the doctoral program at all. And this does happen to people who eventually quit. Because uh, working on the doctorate, I mean, often, I think the sadness is associated with the recognition of your own insufficiency. Like, I am not going to do as good a job at this as I thought. I had dreamed that I was going to write the definitive work on topic X. And what I've got right now is certainly not the definitive work. And so I want to stop working on it. Because when I work on it, I have to confront the fact that I am not producing the definitive work. And that's really personally painful. And it can lead to a kind of sadness that I was ever called to the doctoral program at all. And my relief can seem to be fleeing into anything else that is not my doctoral work, because it frees me from the, the conflict of having to see my own insufficiency. So this is this is a vice. And achadia specifically, is when you're sad about your spiritual calling. So when you're sad about like your vocation as a Christian and you try to flee into other things, um, pleasures, it could be associated with intense busyness. You know, reorganizing your bookshelves makes you look busy, but it's not actually pursuing your vocation. Sensuality is a vice opposed to the intellectual life. That's being absorbed in corporeal things not in the things of the spirit or of the mind. The more your mind dwells on material things and material delights, the more you kind of cultivate a love for material things, the more they will occupy your mind, and the less your mind will be occupied with the highest things. So this is also like a part of studiositas, I think, disciplining your mind and making sure that you don't love the wrong things too much. There's lots of other things that we could uh, catalog here. Rash judgment, negligence, you don't study what you're supposed to, uh, pride, and therefore irritation at being shown that you're wrong about something. That's a very common vice for intellectuals. How to help with these vices? Well, I think Grace, above all, is what you need. And a great help here is starting your day with prayer. So to be super concrete, pray for the grace that you need to overcome these particular vices. And to recognize the vices that you have in your own intellectual life and your own moral life is only going to help you because those vices are the obstacles to the working of grace. The first work of getting your spiritual life and your moral life in order is uprooting the vices or at least identifying what they are. When you don't know what they are, they're most dangerous because then they're working and you're not even aware of the problem. When you become aware of them, they're less dangerous, even though they're still there. And then what you have to do is begin uprooting them. And prayer, that is asking God to uproot them, is one of the most efficacious things you can do. So prayer and then, of course, the sacraments. So once again, the formula is not complicated. It's actually very simple, which doesn't mean that it's easy to do. Uh, But prayer, sacraments, living the Christian life, doing your duty in your state in life, which means for you writing your dissertation or doing your research or preparing your class as well, These are the things that are going to uh, get you moving in the right direction. In the end, though, the human being is sanctified by grace, and grace is given from above. It's not just from our willed efforts. I'd like to conclude by talking a bit about grace and uh, how grace works in the soul. This, This is a huge topic, and we could talk about this a lot more. I think it's a really interesting topic. What is grace? Well, it's God's favor as received in us. God's love, when bestowed in the concrete on us, does change us. So grace isn't just how God thinks about us. Grace is us being changed by God's love of us at God's initiative. And Aquinas says grace first affects the highest part of the soul. And that's where, actually, it gives us something to talk about with the vocation of the Catholic intellectual. Because as a Catholic intellectual, you're trying to cultivate the highest part of the mind and make it stronger, make it powerful, dispose it to do its work better. And this is also where grace intersects with the human creature. So there actually is something that I think when you live the intellectual life well, that disposes you well to the working of grace. Some people have a kind of esoteric view of holiness about how grace changes us. Certain schools of mysticism uh, talk about this. You might think of um, even the way some people read the Carmelite greats, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, they're talking about the dark night of the soul. It seems like this has nothing to do with the intellectual life. In fact, for, for Teresa of Avila or John of the Cross, at least on a certain reading of them, I think it's not the correct reading of them, but on a certain reading of them, maybe you'd be better off not having an intellectual life and just entering into the darkness of faith, leaving all of that behind and working towards mystical union. But I think that's a misunderstanding of what they're saying. After all, both of them were strongly influenced by Thomas Aquinas. So I think Aquinas actually helps you understand how to be like even a mystic, a saint on the highest level with an intellectual life. Uh, But to understand this, it really helps to have a basic taxonomy of the human soul and then to understand how grace works in it. So that's what I want to kind of conclude with. You can think of the human soul as, or the human mind, as a series of concentric circles. So the outer circle is what most directly engages the world. You have the sense powers, for example, which are receiving things from the outside. And then you have, slightly more interior from that circle, the... Internal sense powers, like the common sense, which is receiving all these different sense impressions and now coordinating them into one impression of a thing, a unified thing. Then you have like the imagination, which is generating an image of what you are sensing. And you have the memory of all of the things that you've sensed in the past. Then you have, as we move towards the center of the mind, like the inner circles and the most inner circle, you have what is highest in us. So this is a simplification. If we wanted to do this carefully, we would need to add more distinctions and go into you know, the whole, you might say, structure of the soul. But to just uh, simplify very briefly, you have the, the powers, the rational powers, And there, especially in the order of knowledge, you have what Aquinas calls the agent intellect or the active intellect. The active intellect takes what images are generated from your sense experiences and shines the light of reason on it and works discursively to investigate it. The agent intellect is the active part of the mind that is actively working on the things that you have in your mind to try to understand them. But the highest part of the mind, according to Aquinas, is what he calls the possible intellect or the passive intellect. That's when your mind achieves some real understanding. And here we're talking about what we began with, something properly immaterial and universal When your mind achieves some understanding, the agent intellect is is impressing that on the possible intellect. So where does the understanding really happen? It happens in the possible intellect, which is essentially contemplative. Its work is not to churn to understand. It is to receive what is understood and, in a way, to gaze on it. And that is to be an intellectual. Now, you can do that in your own discipline. And perhaps you can can think about occasions when you've had deep insights, just intellectual insights, and the way you're able to just sit with them and gaze on them and marvel at them. And it's different from the work of ratiocination, which is your mind like working, working, working to try and get deeper. Is that clear? Okay, how does the life of grace intersect with the human mind in this way? Aquinas thinks that actually knowing God by faith in this life, so we only know God by faith, not by vision in this life, it happens, above all, in that inner circle of the mind. And faith endows the mind with a higher light by which we are able to know that these truths revealed to us by God, say spoken to us by God uh, in divine revelation, say in scripture, we are able to know that they're true, but we can't see the truth of them directly. And this is what makes faith dark in a certain sense. In our human pursuits, we can use our minds, starting from the outermost circle all the way to the inner one, to like bring what is outer to the inner and, and actually sort of ascend to grasp what is universal. But in the life of faith, it doesn't work that way because our outer the outer circle is not what is generating the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is, is as it were being given from above. So this can produce a kind of difficulty, especially for someone who has developed the powers of the mind. Because the mind wants to go to work on those things. But the outer circles cannot work on those things. And this is what I think John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila are talking about when they're talking about a certain darkness that is needed for the ascent to God. Which is not to say that we don't care about the outer circles or that we get rid of them in our lives. In fact, there is a real excellence in perfecting them. But they don't, in the end, bear on that highest thing. Rather, it's the knowledge of the highest thing that then has to, in a certain way, work its way down and out into the other things to shape them and shape their activity. And that's what I would propose to you is needed for the vocation of the Catholic intellectual. And that gets back to the point I was making before, that the most fundamental vocation is that of being a Christian, and then of being an intellectual as a particular instance of a Christian vocation. So if you really want to be a powerful Christian or Catholic intellectual, that highest part of the spiritual life needs to be first, and from it, uh, flowing down into the work that you do in your discipline. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate.